Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. How's, how's everybody doing? Good, 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 good. So we're right back in the book of Mark this week. And uh, the title of this week's message is Recognize. Recognize. What we're seeing this week in our text is that Jesus addresses the fact that these religious leaders that he's speaking to simply don't recognize who the Messiah is or, or what they should be looking for in the coming Messiah. He also calls them to recognize the flaws and character issues in their lives And then finally, he recognizes the offering in the heart of a woman who would be from one of the most marginalized demographics of this time, a widow. And he recognizes and lifts up her generous heart, her humble approach to giving. And similarly today, as we read through this and as we receive this word, he is calling us to recognize who he is and how that shapes our lives, our hearts, and our devotion. So today... We are going to recognize who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and how that should play out in our lives. Amen? We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Starting in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And after he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And then Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would speak through me today. Holy Spirit, would you come fill this place? Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us. God, we love you. We love your word. We pray that we would receive from it and out of that be able to apply these truths to our lives. Amen. So it, it kind of feels like when you read that, it kind of bounces around, it seems like, right? Like, okay, you got this and this and this. And for a while, it's like, how, how, how does this connect? And, and I hope that after today, you can see at least how, how this has a thread going through it. And I believe then as we go on, 
in the coming weeks, because I'm trying not to have spoilers, there's so much happening that I, I have to restrain some of these things. It's like, oh, this is what this is pointing to, but I don't get to teach that yet. And so my hope is that after today, you will see a thread. You will see how they connect, and you will see what Jesus is addressing. This particular episode of Scripture here that we read today forms a transition from these previous stories that were referred to as the controversy stories, where religious and cultural leaders were challenging Jesus, his authority, his ideologies, and and different things about what he believed. And it transitions us from this to the teaching episodes that would follow in the coming weeks where Jesus is primarily interacting with his disciples. Now, Mark kicks things off in this section by noting that Jesus is still in the temple courts. He's still right where he was the previous weeks, but this time he is teaching rather than answering questions. If you remember our previous number of weeks, it's been Jesus responding to these questions. They're trying to back him into a corner, trap him between two like tribes of thought and pin him in the middle. And he's, he's dealt with those well. In fact, he has won each of these previous challenges. And at this point, he has silenced his opponents. Last week we read that, and no one else had any questions for him. They were, they were done with that, that game. He had wise and powerful answers, and now he's going more on the offensive. He's going to teach, and he's going to take head on some things that he desires to address. And I believe there's a few specific things that Jesus is challenging or warning the leaders and the people in this text about. And as always, like every week, I don't believe this is just for those people. And we get to read it as some storybook. I'm like, oh, those poor souls, they really needed to learn that. I believe that there are some souls in this room that also need to learn these things. Amen? So my prayer is that God would soften our hearts and we would be able to turn the mirror around, if you will, and see what God wants to teach us, how he wants to soften our hearts, change our perspective on who he is. And the first thing that Jesus just comes right out of the gates dealing with here is that the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of this time, simply had an inadequate view of who the Messiah was. It was just, it was, came up so short. They had no clue the fullness of who this Messiah would be. They believed that the Messiah, the appointed one, this king appointed by God, would be one descended from the family of David. They believed that he was going to restore this Davidic kingdom. In fact, when you read through any commentaries or literature or people who are talking more in the academic way about this, they call it the Davidic messianic expectation. Oh, that's big words, Davidic messianic expectation. All that's saying is that they expect that the Messiah is coming from David. You just read it in reverse and it all makes sense. And this arose from a covenant made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're not going to read that here today, but go back, read that. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. And then it's developed even more in the latter prophets. But this is where they saw this. And even in the book of Mark, we'll just leave out the other gospels right now, but in the book of Mark, we see a couple other times where very specific instances point to this expectation. One is the cry of blind Bartimaeus. I believe Shadrach Bell is the one who preached that one for us, where he cries out, son of David. And one was as Jesus is in his triumphal entry, entering into Jerusalem, and they cry out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You remember that? We talked about that, right? Like, so it's not hard to see that that this is an expectation of theirs. 
these instances confirm to us that a restored Davidic kingdom was a popular expectation in Israel. It was not some anomaly. It wasn't just a few people. It was like that was the prevailing idea is that this kingdom would be restored through the line of David. And Jesus asked them a question. And basically he's saying, in what sense or how is this so? That the Messiah is the son of David. He's like, explain to me your, your ideas here. What do you mean when you say that this Messiah is going to be the son of David? And then Jesus doesn't actually wait for an answer. He gives them this and he's like, let me tell you. Because <laughs> I know you ain't got nothing to offer to this conversation. So sit back, let me educate you a little bit. Let me educate you a little bit. He doesn't wait for an answer. He provides himself and he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1. David calls the Messiah, my Lord. How can he at the same time be David's son, is what he's asking. How, how can those both be? In the presupposition here, which would have been dominant in the culture and the people that he's speaking to, is that a son would normally be viewed as a subordinate to a father. Yet David treats, in these verses, his son or descendant as his superior. And this would have been totally paradigm shifting. Like there was no like box or category for a father referring to his son as Lord and exalting him as some higher position or status. Like in this type of culture, that just wasn't a thing. And the answer that Jesus intended to elicit here was that the Messiah is indeed to be descended from David, but he has a more exalted role than that of his successor, of, or than that of a successor of David. The point that he's making here is not that the Messiah is not a son of or descendant of David, but that this category is simply inadequate to explain his person and his work. The box that they are putting him in does not fully bring to light all that this Messiah would be. In fact, they are restricting significantly the fullness of it. And in turn, their ideology about who the Messiah would be and their hope in the future is all in this political military dominance rather than what Jesus is bringing about, a kingdom of God being about the heart, about the full person. What this is saying is that Jesus is not just the son of David. He is the son of God. They have an inadequate view. This is going to be from the line of David. He's going to bring everything back to the good old days. We've heard that rhetoric even in our nation. Jesus is not just the son of David. He is the son of God. And the main point in this teaching of Jesus, initiated in the form of a question, is this. The Messiah's status and role far exceeds traditional expectations. Far exceeds all their expectations. Basically like, you guys, this Messiah is going to blow your mind. You have no categorical place to put him with what you can fathom of what he's gonna do, what he's gonna accomplish, and what he's going to mean to you. And I believe that much like the religious folks of Jesus's time, we also tend to have an inadequate view of the Messiah and what he's done for us and how we live in light of that truth. 
As much as we want to distance ourselves from these religious people that Jesus is clearly addressing and has some harsh things to say about, oftentimes we can read it and be like, whew, thank the Lord that's not me. But I believe if we take an honest audit of the way in which we view the Messiah and the way in which we apply his truths and like devotion to him in our lives might indicate that we have more in common with these folks than we would like to admit. With so many modern conveniences and comforts at our disposal, especially compared to many other places in the world, it's easy to get complacent about the significance of what Jesus has done for us. It's easy to get complacent about the things that are just earth-shattering, that Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection, conquering sin and death, and him giving us his Holy Spirit to walk out the way he's called us to walk. Like, we, it's so hard to wrap our minds around, especially when we have so much where we live. But we need to be informed by what Jesus has done. It should inform our significance to him, therefore compelling us to live a life of significance. You see, when we understand what the Messiah, who he is, what he does for us, the price that was paid for you and you and me, that gives us significance. It gives us significance, and therefore we get to live out of an overflow of the significance bestowed upon us, not living out of trying to achieve significance in the eyes of God. And that is a freeing, liberating, amazing way to live our lives. God considers me significant, so much so that he gave Jesus for me, and now I get to live a life of significance out of that. In the next chunk, Jesus decides to take on pride, something that definitely was just of biblical times that nobody or any cultures deal with today. Uh No one. Um, Pride. Man, pride is just a nasty thing, isn't it? The way that it infects our hearts, our souls, our relationships, our actions, the way we treat others, the way that we maybe try to elevate ourselves or put ourselves down so others can lift us up and elevate us, right? Like pride is just a dirty thing. And Jesus tells the people here, watch out for the teachers of the law. He is in the temple. He's on their home court and he's saying, watch out for these people. Like, can you imagine just the, the boldness and the courage that that took? Now, he is God in a man's body. Like, okay, I'll give him that. He, he had all authority and capability of doing that. But still, it's like, man, you're like in their house. And you're like, hey, watch out for these teachers of the law. And then he follows it with some specific things that they should be watching out for. Jesus is continuing his teaching moment here, addressing some character issues that the leaders have. These aren't just like, hey, you guys, like this whole burnt offering thing, I'm coming and I'm going to remove that and we're going to have a a new way of doing things. I'm going to be the ultimate sacrifice, just wait. Like he's not addressing methodological things. He's addressing their character, the core of who they are. And in a culture that is so steeped in religious expression, like checking things off lists and trying to do the right things so everybody else sees that you're religious, he's coming in and he's saying, no, 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 let's deal with the character. Let's deal with the heart. Let's deal with what's on the inside. And he clearly and simply warns them about their pride and their sinful desires for material gain. 
In Matthew, this short denunciation is a rather lengthy condemnation of a series of woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And I find it particularly interesting that as we read through the Gospel of Mark, shortly before this, last week we read where he's interacting with a scribe, and he's like pleased with the scribe's answer. You remember this? Like this guy was like, he was closer to the kingdom, like he was close to the kingdom of God, Jesus said. He's like, man, this guy gets it. His heart is actually in the right direction. So it's, it's interesting that this immediately follows that up. But I believe the point in that is this. While there are individual exceptions to this fact, the religious establishment as a whole was characterized by widespread corruption. As a whole, religion and the religious establishment and the power structure and elitism that was just ingrained into the religious establishment for these people was just totally corrupt. And what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out, hey guys, just like anything, there are exceptions. There are people that shine through that stuff. There are good people in any group, even these scribes and Pharisees and teachers. And then in this, if we're not careful, we can't see the fullness of this, but Jesus gives some specific reasons that they should be aware of the teachers and what they, are, what they need to take away from his uh, condemnation of their character, if you will. And there's seven things here, that, uh, or six things, that he specifically addresses. And first is that they craved attention, walking around in their showy robes or religious uniform, if you will, and that they, were less, they weren't actually interested at all in meeting the needs and caring for others, but rather getting recognized for their position. So they would take traditional religious garments that they would wear in ceremonial settings, and they would walk around wearing that just so that people knew and would give them reverence and respect and that they could present themselves as important no matter where they went. These people also demanded acknowledgement of their status. They expected people to rise and honor them with titles fitting their significance or importance. Some of these titles that they were expected to be addressed with were master, rabbi, and even father. These were the ways that, like, when it talks about going into the marketplace and how they would be greeted, that's how they would be expected to be addressed as they went around. They demanded that people pay attention to their rank and their position of authority, no back row seating for these guys, right? They demanded the front seats and they would sit up front looking down on the congregation no matter what synagogue or place they went into. They also expected places of honor at banquets. They insisted on sitting near the host. However, if you've read through your Bible, we know that Jesus specifically says this, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's Matthew 23. And this was completely foreign to these leaders. The idea of a servant leader or sacrificing or serving folks wherever you went, that was not part of the job description as far as these folks recognized it. They also take advantage of the vulnerable, who in this context is widows. Like a manipulative televangelist, they sought to make money or other gain from their ministry and positions. And, and you read that, you're like, how do they make money from a poor widow? Well, oftentimes a poor widow would still have a home. And there was an obligation culturally that if one of these teachers or scribes came through, you were to put them up in your home. You were to feed them. You were to take care of them. Like That was part of the culture. And they would often pray on the least of these to 
take this over. Also, the scribes were religious lawyers of sorts, and so people believed that the scribes would be entrusted to help these widows with their estates or with their homes, and they would often devour or manipulate them out of their properties. And so they were disenfranchising this population, which if you read into a lot of the commentaries in the history of this, it wasn't just widows. It was simply taking advantage of the least of these for their own financial and material gain. Finally, they were long-winded and showed off in the way they prayed in public, utilizing a time that should be approached with humility to flex their intellectual verbiage, if you will. They exercised long, eloquent prayers in public, but their personal prayer time and their hearts were hardened to God. Jesus considers it better for a few fumbling words from a humble heart than a marvelous oration from a proud heart. He would much rather have a few fumbling over yourself, not knowing exactly what you're going to say, words from a place of humility and a heart that's directed to him than some well-put-together, super-intellectual speech from someone that is doing that out of pride. Now, when I read through this and I try to picture, man, what must have these guys been like? What must have they been like? I can't help but get a specific picture in my head, and so naturally I want to share that with you this morning. Um, I have many memories when I was a kid of going to the Portland Zoo. Anybody ever been to the Portland Zoo? Never heard of it. So <clears throat> naturally, it was a while since I'd been there. So things may have changed, but I'm just going to tell you my truth and what it looked like when I was there. So I remember going, there's like this big amphitheater, right, in the, in the center-ish of the zoo. And the reason I remember it, because one of my like, favorite things to do there was ride the train over to the Rose Garden with the family and look at the roses. And the elephants were there, as I remember. And so it was like amphitheater, train down below, and the elephants. And me and elephants, we just got this connection, and I, I loved going and, and hanging out with them. And uh, so, so these are the things that I remember from there. But every time I would walk through the amphitheater, there were these darn peacocks that would just strut through this place like they owned it. Have you guys been there and seen this? Like, these peacocks would just come through in their flock, and it didn't matter how busy it was, what was going on. And we got a picture, in case you don't know what a peacock is. Um, (laughs) But they'd just puff out their feathers, and they'd be strutting along like, yeah, check me out. And it didn't matter how inconvenienced you were, how many people were around. They owned the place, and they were going to flex that they have these beautiful feathers, and they've been created with such ornate design that they were clearly God's favorite fowl right? Like that is the attitude that they would roam around this place in. And then in contrast to that, there was one time we went there that the whole, I don't even know if you call them a flock. I didn't do enough research, but this whole group of peacocks was doing that. And then there was this one off in the shade all by itself. And I was like, man, what's going on with that little guy? Well, it looked like he'd been put through a laundry machine. Like, so I don't know what happened to him, but feathers missing, all ragged. And because he couldn't hang with the showy nature of what this entitled, um, parade looked like, he just kind of sat back there. Like it was like he was stripped of anything that he had to offer because of just how his his feathers were gone. He looked ragged and worn down. I don't know, maybe he was recovering from an operation or something, but this guy was rough. And it made me wonder like, what do these things have to offer if not just for these showy like parades where they walk around and they want everyone to look at them and they just have this entitled attitude as they puff out their chest, their big feathers and show off to everybody around there. And that's what I think of when I think of these religious leaders. 
Like, man, what, what, you take that away, these robes and everything that they're presenting to the public to get attention and be admired and be, have people be in awe of them, you take that away, and what do they have to offer? Are they just sitting back in the shade like, man, I, I can't go out in public. I have nothing to offer, folks. These guys, it was all about what they presented, how they showed what was on the outside, but their hearts were hard and cold and empty. And I know that sounds really judgmental, but read through your Bible and these are the things that it says about them. Similarly, Jesus is addressing the puffed up, prideful entitlement that can be exemplified in these religious leaders. But he expects so much more than a show-stopping parade out of his people. God would have his leaders, his servants, caring for the least of these, dealing with issues of the heart rather than puffing out your feathers or wearing your flowing robes, as it says in Mark. He would not call us to flex our status or our influence for prideful gain. He would call us to care about the little guy in the shade, right? The people that don't have, look like they have it all together. And my goodness, his social media just helped all this, right? That's a whole nother sermon series. So what if we, once again, flip the mirror around for a moment and consider what areas we may be throwing our feathers around and presenting something in the public square that is actually unsubstantiated? that's actually not at the core of who we are, but we know that's how we're expected or we think that's how we're expected to look or how we're gonna please people or how we're gonna get recognized or like. And so every time we get out that front door and we're heading out into public, boom, feathers out. And you're walking around and you got your whole presentation going, right? You're not actually honoring God and caring for his people and allowing God to transform your heart, but you're presenting what you think the world expects of you. In what ways does your public presentation not line up with your heart and or the heart of God? It's a question I'm going to ask you to to deal with. I'm just going to leave that there. I'm going to remind you that my email is chris at gracecityeugene.com. And if you want to talk any more about that, process through that, get together, I'm happy to do so. But these kind of questions are not meant to just be, oh yeah, I should work on that and move on to the next point. These, These questions, these things are meant to actually be thought through, prayed through, jot down some notes and thoughts and see how God might move you forward in this area. And as Jesus wraps up this part of the scripture, he illustrates what a heart posture opposite of what he's been addressing looks like. He shows how a poor widow giving everything she had, even though it was minuscule in comparison to the influential and affluent folks that were giving all around her, she gave everything she had to live on. She gave it all. Her heart was different. Her heart was different. And so Jesus calls the disciples to him because there was a lesson that he wanted them to learn here. The widow's offering counted more than all the others, because what she gave, even though it was a small fraction of their wealth, she gave 100% from her poverty. She gave it all. She didn't say, well, two cents isn't even enough for me to eat later, and so I'm going to hold on to that and hope that I can find some money laying around somewhere else so that I can eat. She says, I have nothing if it's not from God, and gives of everything to him. Her gift was greater in proportion and also in spirit. 
and the spirit in which she gave it. Now, when it comes to this topic of money, two things are certain. Two things. The Bible has a lot to say about it, and most people don't like to hear what the Bible has to say about it. Right? Like, the Bible does have a lot to say about money. And most times, people don't want to hear what the Bible has to say about it. Yet we desperately need to hear it because Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is there also. And clearly the poor widow had her heart in the right place, but unfortunately many others did not. Now this morning, this would be an easy segue to get into a whole sermon on giving and generosity and all that fun stuff. And it may be warranted, but I believe God really wants us to focus in just a little bit different direction this morning. I believe there's two questions he wants us to address as we close up. First, is what position does Jesus hold in your life? What position does he hold in your life? Does he hold a position where because I associate with him, it gives me some sort of cultural, economic, or power advantage. And therefore, this is a good association for me to have, and I'm going to hold on to that, and I'm going to utilize that for material and financial gain. But ultimately, relying on my own manipulation and my own provision in these things, is, is that the position that he holds in your life? Maybe like those religious leaders. Or does he hold a position in your life where if it's not for him, you have nothing? That he is everything you have, everything that has been provided to you, relationships, blessings, money, home, whatever it may be, you recognize that's from him. And he gets the best of me all the time that I can, recognizing we're not perfect and we're going to come up short sometimes, but that our heart direction would be one of humility, always trying to be supremely devoted to the God of the Bible. What position does Jesus hold in your life? And if you're a Bible-believing Christian here with us today, the only place he wants to hold in your life is first place. Priority, number one, the top. Lordship, king, those are some of the words we could put to it. He is your Lord and Savior. And as we discussed in previous weeks, he's not looking to climb some proverbial corporate ladder in your life where he starts out at an entry-level job, and as he proves himself, you will elevate him in upper levels of priority to maybe someday be the CEO of your life. That's not how it works. He's not saying, hey, man, if I can just start out making 15 bucks an hour, you know, and I'd love the opportunity over the years combined with my education and ongoing development that I could get to that CEO spot. No, he comes in and he says, hey, I actually already gave you everything. I gave you everything you need. I will continue to give you everything you need. But I am supposed to be first place in your life. I came to be your savior and your Lord. I came to lead your life. Jesus gave his life for us, and we're called to devote our lives to him. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. But there's no maybe. There's no sorta first place. There's no kinda. There's no just in case, as we've discussed previously, when it comes to our devotion to Jesus. So when we look at these stories today, can we recognize the place that we are called to hold Jesus in our lives? Can we recognize the devotion that we are to have to him? Or is it just a little bit of a convenience 
This is a little bit of a, a side thing we have going to help us out through life. When maybe I can't handle my own stuff, I can give Jesus a call and he'll come in and help me out. Jesus uses terms like these will be judged the most severely with people with these kind of mixed devotions, mixed motives that are trying to use and abuse him and his people for financial gain out of their prideful hearts, hardened hearts. I would petition you to consider what place he actually holds in your life. And if you believe in the Bible, the God of the Bible, and you believe that to be true, would we be ever increasing in our devotion, our supreme devotion to him? The second question I believe we need to address today, and Chris and Griffin, you guys can come back up, is does the position or posture of our hearts actually align with Jesus being first? being the object of our supreme devotion. Maybe you're trying to get there. You just need some help. You need God to continue to transform you in some ways. You need the Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you to prioritize God. And yes, absolutely, we are not capable of doing all that on our own strength. And it's not going to look perfect, but our devotion to God should be as such that in any given moment, any given decision, any circumstance, that he would take priority. That he would take priority. And it's going to be a journey to get there. You don't just go, hey, I bought a Bible and everything's good and it all works out perfect. You got to read it. And then you got to apply it. And then you got to get in community to walk this stuff out with. And then you got to have some tough conversations and humble yourself so that others can speak into your life and help you become a better version of yourself and walk more in the fullness of who God's created you to be. Maybe you just need to honestly assess your life and your priorities and your heart and see what needs to change so that you can follow him truly with everything you are. Not just on your Instagram or Facebook, not just on a Sunday morning, but with your whole heart, with everything you are in the public square and behind closed doors. What does that look like? And once you get to that place, how do you live in a way where the condition of your heart is healthy and directed to God and you're not just portraying some way of life because you think that's what others expect of you? You see, when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, when we get, as the scripture tells us, this, this new heart, when we're this new creation, when we get new life through Jesus, things change. Things change. And as God transforms us, our priorities change. We become more and more like Jesus. Our heart softens to the things that breaks God's heart. And we truly start to become a new, better version of ourselves. And in that, it transitions what might have been doing things because that person expects that of me, or I want to please this person or earn favor from this person or this group of people to God being the reason why you live that way. Man, God gave so much for me. He clearly considers me significant. I don't have to go try to make sure everyone else considers me significant because the one who created me already does. And when we live out of that place with our heart directed in that way, we don't have to live under the shackles of all the expectations of the flesh and the world, but we get to live in the freedom of walking, following a God 
who's paid the price for us. And his son, who gives us his Holy Spirit to live our lives with fullness, with purpose, and with meaning. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Come to him humble and giving rather than coming to him for position or status or power and see what he can do in your life. When you bring to him a humble heart that's directed towards him, you enter in to a meaningful, purposeful life of impact, not just for you and your family, but for this world and the extension of the kingdom of God. And what better a calling, what like better a life and a purpose and a mission to live. It may seem ominous and overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, how do I do that? One step at a time, one day at a time. What's tomorrow look like? How do I take one step closer to being what Jesus has called me to be tomorrow? And then we'll take on the next step after that. But don't let analysis paralysis, because we're really good at seeing how bad we are if we're honest with ourselves, how far we got to go. And don't sit there and say, well, there's no way I'll ever get there. So let's just stay comfy. What is the next step? And the next step after that, and you walk that out in community, inspired and empowered by the Spirit of God, and see what He will do in your lives. We get to recognize who Jesus really is, why God sent Him, and what He accomplished on the cross. Recognize what Jesus has done for you, for us, and then invite Him to hold His intended position in your life, and in the life of your family for generations to come. I'll say that in closing. This isn't just about you. This is about changing a family, a city, a workplace, the legacy of your family name, like your children. This, this flows on to generations. The opportunity is huge. It's amazing. So what's your next step? What's your next step? Case, come on up. Casey's going to close us in prayer. And then we're going to finish with one more song of worship as we reflect. Lord, we humble ourselves before you, recognizing that sometimes our motivations do get out of line. Sometimes we are influenced by the, the perks or the benefits that we see possible because of a relationship with you, our status with others, potential leadership roles or influence, responsibilities, power that make us feel good about ourselves and make us stand out in front of others. But God, those things are all fleeting. Those things don't have power in and of themselves. God, we want to seek you. Lord, we pray now that you would illuminate in our hearts the areas where we have got out of line with the motivations we're supposed to have in our relationship with you. God, where we've been pursuing the benefits and the blessings of being in relationship with you rather than just pursuing you, trusting that your goodness, your faithfulness is more than enough and that the life that you care to take us on as we pursue you and you alone is going to be far better than anything that we could have ever dreamed of anything that we could have ever desired or hoped for. So God, we pray that right now you would humble our hearts and God, lead us into your grace. Thank you, God, that the process of transformation, becoming like Christ, is not 
a burden-filled one, but one that you have taken the yoke, one that you have partnered alongside of us to help us walk into true transformation and to becoming more like Christ. So God, we seek you. We turn away from our selfish ambition, our selfish pride, and we say, God, would you help lead us in whatever the next steps we need to take in pursuing you freely, God. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.